don't even know where to start, Paulette. At the very beginning, that's what the song says. <laughs> the very beginning. Uh, I guess, let's see. It was a Monday night around 7.45 p.m. in Nashville, Tennessee at Baptist Hospital, now known as St. Thomas Midtown, that I came into this world. <laughs> That's literal. Uh, um, actually, it was a fight getting here from what my mom tells me. Um, when I was first born, there were some complications. Uh, I was a little early. I was about a month early. So when I came out, I was blue. And the doctors uh, had all these doom and gloom things to tell my mom and dad. And before me, mom and dad had lost a child between me and my sister. So daddy was up in arms. He was all fired up and mad. And he just told me, I'll sue everything in here until I get something if you lose my son. You lost one, you're not losing this one. So uh, my granddaddy calls me to the hospital, says, whatever you need, do it. Money's not an issue. So they ended up putting me in some kind of incubator until my lungs fully developed. But after a while, you know, they, told my, they did tell my parents, if he can make it through the night, he'll be all right. However, uh, your son will probably not be able to see, he won't be able to hear, and all this other stuff. Apparently, they didn't know what they were talking about in 78, because I hadn't been able to quit talking since I started. <laughs> so, uh, that's the beginning part uh, of that. Uh, but first, I just want to say thank you all for having me here. Uh, when Paulette asked me, I'm like, are you sure about this, Paulette? Do you have enough time? <laughs> but I told her I'm going to try to do the truncated version of my story. So I'm originally from Pulaski, Tennessee. Uh, if anybody's familiar with Pulaski, that's about, from here, it's probably about 60 or 70 miles south, just off of I-65, exit 22, uh, is the birthplace of the KKK. Uh, they were started there in 1865, December the 24th, by six attorneys in a law office. This actually still standing on the square. Uh, the plaque where it used to be there has been flipped over in our town, though. Uh, the Klan does not have a big foothold in Pulaski anymore. Um, that's mainly out. The main foothold for that is in the rural areas. Very small community out there. It's like that. Um, I went to Giles County High uh, through the Pulaski school system uh, in Giles County. Uh, while there, I was an athlete. I was a scholar. I did a little bit of everything. I played in the band. You probably wouldn't think that about me, but I used to play trombone. Played that for about six years before they make, made me make a choice between playing football or playing in the band. In middle school, I did it all. I played football, baseball, basketball, soccer, and I was playing in the concert and the high school marching band. But when I got to high school, they made me choose. And of course, I chose football. Um, I lettered all four years playing football, basketball, and soccer in high school. And I played travel league baseball. Um, it's kind of interesting. My last baseball game was actually on Lipscomb's field. We were playing the Nashville Shootiques. And then lightning struck near the field, and they called the game, and we never got to play it. And it was all kind of scouts up there and everything. I was excited because back then, I think I was like 16 or 17, and I was a stolen base champ. If you'll ask you, nobody was faster than me at the time. 
So every time now I go home, my kids will meet people that went to school with me, and they'll look at my sons, because now they're finally getting up in the age to where the people look at them and they say they look kind of athletic. They're like, are you as fast as your dad? And they're like, my dad was fast. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I was fast. Then I had to go break out the VHS tapes that I can't play anymore. Be like, on this, you would see that. But no, I got lucky the other day and found a DVD that I had made. And I got to show my sons, look, look, this is your daddy. Look what I did. Then five minutes later, I'm all in one of the room. I'm still like, yeah, look at me, look, 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 look at this. This is real football. I uh, used to love playing all kinds of sports, man. Uh, like I said, I played, if it was a sport, I played it uh, between that. And it's kind of weird because early on in high school, I didn't like to read a lot. I just wanted to play ball. But I was really smart. Um, I didn't have to do a lot of study, and I could just figure things out really quick. So when I graduated from high school, I ended up going to Tennessee State University. And originally, I had planned on uh, majoring in criminal justice uh, with a minor in psychology and sociology. I had grand plans to become, at first I wanted to be a defense attorney, but then I found out, oh, if somebody told me they were guilty, I couldn't quit. And no, couldn't defend them if I knew that. I would have an issue with that. So then I said, okay, I know what I want to do. I'm going to be a DA. Because my professor told me if I was a DA, I'd run the city. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's what I want. And you know, I don't have to answer to anybody. He said, only people you got to answer to is the people that elected you. Okay, that's easy. We'll put them on voicemail. So, <laughs> you know, so I wanted to do that. Then I figured out, oh, wow, I thought defense attorney had moral issues. But then if you're a prosecutor, sometimes you know people aren't innocent. You still have to try to prosecute. I'm like, I don't think I want to do that. So then I thought about becoming a police officer. Oh, I was gun ho to do that. Then I seen how crooked that could be. Then I'm like, man, I don't know what I want to do anymore. So around about 1998-ish, I was at Tennessee State playing football for TSU under L.C. Cole. Uh, I was a strong safety at Tennessee State. I played, it's crazy because I played linebacker in high school and I played uh, quarterback and tailback. I was actually several on the field. I never got off of it. We only had 30 players, so we had to go both ways. Uh, much like Giles County is today, uh, only, we only ever had 30 players and only 11 of them played. So, but, um, it came a time, like in 98, um, there was a big reckoning for me and my wife. And that was when my parents got a divorce. That threw a little, thing, a little bit of every, little everything off the rails for me uh, as far as everything I had known growing up. Because at the time, Daddy was a preacher. We had been raised, I was raised at Taylor Street Church of Christ uh, in Pulaski. I was baptized at Taylor Street at January 8th. 15th, 1988. I was uh, a youth coordinator at that church at an early age. However, I did not want to go into the ministry. Ministry was not what I wanted to do. I avoided it. I had a full scholarship to Martin Methodist College coming out of high school to play soccer. I wouldn't go there because it was a private Christian school. I, had a, I got an offer from Freed Hartman to play basketball. And I'm like, no, I'm not going there. 
And they said, why? I said, because I don't want to go to that Christian school. I don't want to be, I don't want to go through that. I've been through that all my life. I don't want to go there and do that. I said, plus the fact, why do you want me to play basketball? I didn't even really play. I just was on the basketball team to travel. You know, I was good enough to get on the team because our team was really, really good. But I was short. All my cousins were like 6'6 six, six and 6'7. Six, so here I am at 5'9, five 5'10. Foot five I didn't get to see the floor very often. So how are you going to give me a full ride to play basketball? You ain't never seen me play. You know, that made no sense. That's what made me walk on at TSU. I actually had a partial scholarship to go to Mississippi State and play down there. But I decided not to go that far away. Went to Tennessee State, played. But then in 98, all this stuff happened with mom and dad. And that was the first real conflict in life with, I guess you would say, my faith and whatnot. So when that hit, that was, I think, the first time I'd actually encountered depression. But I didn't know what it was. Because, uh, I mean, depression will make you do some weird things. I'll never forget, I signed up for all these classes I never went to. And I'm still paying for it today. Uh, back in 1998 and 97, because I was so depressed, I wouldn't wake up. I would just sleep, sleep. And finally, I'm like, this is just, this ain't cutting it. You know, and I said, okay, I need to quit wasting money like that. And that's like around about 98 is when I said, okay, I'm not going to waste y'all's money like that. I'm going to step out for a little while and, and take a pause. And during that time period, um, because of everything, the turmoil of a divorce that was going on, it was rough. Because, um, you know, the divorce divorces tend to bring out the worst side of everybody and everything, and, you know. And I was up here in Nashville, and they were back in Pulaski, so I was trying to avoid all of it. But during that time period, uh, I quit going to church. Uh, I didn't want to go anywhere because I was trying to find what was going on. Everything I'd always known had just been ripped apart. So now my thinking in my head is something's just not right with the way I understand Christianity. This, this, this doesn't make sense to me. I can't trust this. You know, that's what I started thinking. Something's not right. I need to reevaluate this. God, why would you let this happen to me? Why would you do this to me? Those are the type of questions that were going on in my little um, 18, 19-year-old head at the time. Uh, in the 20s, I was trying to figure out what was happening. And I think it was from 98 to around 2003, I became a uh, security officer slash bouncer all over Nashville. Um, I was about, I was the same height, but I was only 145 pounds, but I was mean. <laughs> that was the only thing that could help me. I, I, was, I was mean. Due to everything that was going on with the divorce and everything, there had been a lot of pent-up aggression and anger. So... That I used that job as a way to filter those things. So I became what the people would call back in the day. Uh, I was trained by a guy who used to work honky-tonks in Cookville, Tennessee, and those places out there. He trained me in how to do the job uh, of being a bouncer or a cooler, is what some people would call them, meaning you'd be the person they would call in to clean out bad spots. So I worked with a crew of about 12 people when we used to work. And we would get, people would call us. If there was a place that not even police would like to go into, we would go. And we wouldn't even be armed. Uh, we would go in there, and within a month, we would clean that place out, and people could bring in the clientele they wanted to after we got rid of the bad elements. And then once we got rid of the bad elements, we couldn't stay there anymore. 
they would move us to the next hot spot. Because you couldn't have people beating up your clients. <laughs> you know, you don't want that. You're trying to chase away a certain people. And I didn't realize that's what was happening until one night we had cleaned up everything we had and they had to send me somewhere to work. So they sent me somewhere and I walked in and the people in the place looked up and said, one guy runs up to me, why are you here? Is this a bad spot? Why would you say that? Because you're here. What's that supposed to mean? I'm not a bad person. Oh, no, you no, no, no. I'm not saying you're bad, but you are bad. People don't mess with you. I'm like, what? I don't do nothing. At least that's what I'm thinking to myself. But, um, I, like I said, I was good at my job. I mean, I didn't care about how size of people didn't matter back then. I remember it would be nights I would get into fights with people well, way, way bigger than me. I fought a man one night. He had to be at least six foot eight. I whooped him too. <laughs> it's all because, you know, back at that time period, like I said, it was a time period where me and God wasn't seeing eye to eye. And one of the most dangerous things in this world is a person who doesn't have a fear of God in their life. And at that moment in time, I didn't. I thought to myself as a young, because I was only like 19 or 20, and I was only thinking, I didn't, I was, I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. In reality, I was 5 foot 10, 145 pounds, soaking wet with boots. <laughs> That's what I was. But I had this fight within me, an internal struggle going on that would pour out into other people who happened to cross my path unfortunately. And it, I would use that as an excuse to do whatever I had to do to get them out of whatever. So after a while doing that, that got old, and I finally realized something's just not right. Something's missing. I don't know what it is. You know, God, what's going on here? Why, do I, why am I here? What's, why is my life unraveling? And you know, I'm thinking to myself, I've only been on this planet for 20 years, and and just my life went to hell in a handbasket is what I'm feeling like. Not realizing you still got so much more life to go. But at that time period, I wasn't even suspected to get to 21, being an African-American male in America. But I made it. And <laughs> so one day I get a call from my mom and dad. And my mom tells me she's sick and needs me to come home. My dad said he's sick and needs me to come home and help. So I said, okay, I packed up everything, and I moved back to Pulaski. And for about, I think I stayed in Pulaski for about six months before I moved back up this way to live with my sister. But during that time period, the time to reset and trying to get things refocused, started trying to go back to church, which that was a problem at first. Because sometimes church people aren't the people that understand what people who went through struggles are. Um, Preconceived notions are the killer of ministries. From people with good intent, good and well-intentioned people can say the most messed up stuff uh, at the wrong times. And I used to get that all the time. Oh, it's good to see you back. We thought you were dead. What? <laughs> stuff like that. So <laughs> I was just like, this just not feel right. So I went to my home congregation, but this didn't feel like home anymore. Went to my sister, sister's church where she was going to at the time, and that just didn't feel right. 
And I was once again still talking to God, like, man, what is going on? What what has happened? What did I do wrong? Why don't I feel at home even at church anymore? Because my memories where I was most happy was when I was in church. So I'm like, am I finding my joy in the wrong thing? What's you know? And here's something I'm gonna tell you: when you ask God to do something, be ready for what you're asking for, because He's gonna if He He answers those prayers. And Lord knows in my life He has. So I ask God, I need you to show me. Where you want me to go? I'm I'm done with all this. You know, I, I've got to find structure in my life. I need help. Wherever you want to take me, I'm going. Why did I say that? <laughs> so one day my dad said, "Son, I need you to take me to a doctor's appointment in Nashville." I said, "Cool, I'll take you to the doctor's appointment." So we come up here. I take him to Centennial. Now, mind y'all, the backstory of this is I didn't really know how sick my dad was. He didn't tell me, okay? He was very secretive about his health and his personal business. He didn't never want to worry me. So he didn't tell me that the appointment that I had brought him to before, the doctor had told him he needed heart surgery. But if they were to do a surgery at that time, there was a 95% chance he would die on the table. I didn't know that that day. So this day when I take him back again, I didn't know what they were looking at. So when I get him in there, we're sitting in there and waiting and waiting. About an hour goes by. And I'm sitting here I'm like, man, this is taking a while. I didn't take this long last time. So next thing I know, the doctor comes out. And I'm like, this is weird. Why is this doctor coming out here to talk to me? Doctors never come out there to talk to you unless it's something bad. So he calls my name out. I look up. I'm like, yes, sir. And he walks over to me. He sits down in front of me. And he's smiling. And he's got this, this you know, the little surgical caps they wear. Because I'm asking myself, why is he wearing all this stuff? And why is he wearing it now? You know? And he's smiling at me. He says, man, everything's looking good. I'm like, that's good to hear. Yeah, so why are you here? Oh, it's great. We're about to take him in. Take, take, take what, what? Take who to where? Oh, we're going to take your daddy and we're going to do this surgery now. Hold up, man. Time out. What surgery? This was a doctor's checkup. He said, oh, he didn't tell you? Tell me what? No, this was, a, this, was a, this was us to see if he was ready to have heart surgery. Hold up. Heart what? Oh, we're about to do a, tri- a triple bypass on your dad. When? In the next hour. What? <laughs> Hold on. Say what? You're not you're not making sense right now. I gotta get it. So first thing, my first instinct, I gotta call my sister. She's the oldest. Call Rhonda. Rhonda, what are you doing? Oh, I'm at work. You need to you need to, you need to cancel them right now. I can't cancel them in the middle of doing some woman, some woman's hair. Well, let it fall out. You got to get to this hospital. She said, huh? I said, let her hair fall out. Have somebody else do it, but you need to get to Centennial. They're about to take daddy in and do a, a triple bypass surgery. She said, say what? I said, yeah, you feel like me now, don't you? I said, you need to get to Centennial. You only got 45 minutes, so you need to leave Smyrna now. But I got a lady in shampoo you better give to somebody else. You got to get here. So she dropped everything she was doing, got to Centennial, and she walks in where I'm at, and she's like, what's going on? I'm like, 
They just told me that is about to have surgery. Sure enough, they take him in, they do the open heart surgery, end up being a quadruple bypass rather than a triple. So none of us was ready for any of that. And, you know, and me and Daddy, we were still on shaky ground. So the relationship between me and him at that point in time was really tense. So I'm also mad at him now because he put me in this situation because I didn't know what to do. And I'm freaking out. And then I get sick because of my anxiety and everything. My body just starts shutting down on me. I had to call my aunt, who was a nurse. I called my other aunt from Pillar. I had to call all his sisters. Y'all need to get to this hospital. Your brother's about to do this, this, and this. And I don't know what's going to happen. So all of them had to come up then, my sisters. So then he goes to the surgery, comes, comes out well. I come back in, and I see that tube in his throat. It, I was done. I almost passed out. So he told them to get me out the room. He motioned to get me out. They got the tube out. I come back in, and my sister's sitting there talking to him. He's whispering, and he just grips her hand, and he draws a Y in it for my mama. At this time, they're, they're divorced. They don't even really talk. But he's telling my sister to get my mama there for me. Because he's seen, I was upset. So, we called Mama. She had to drive to Pulaski to Nashville. She's like, what's going on? I'm like, uh, Daddy had to have quadruple bypass surgery. He's up here, blah, 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 blah. He told he wants you here. Why does he want me there? I don't know he wants you there. She gets there, and he points directly at me and points at her. In other words, telling her, you need to take care of him. Then... An hour later, when he's able to talk a little bit better, he looks at me and says, son, I need you to go to Winchester. That's where he was ministering at the time. I said, sure, I'm going to go down there and let him know you're doing all right. He says, no, you gotta, I need you to go down and preach. Excuse me? You want me to do what? You got to go preach. Daddy ain't never preached. You know that. I said, the best idea was ever, I led songs. I, I, I'm not a preacher. That's, you, that's your thing. And he looks at him and says, no, you've been a preacher the day, since the day you were born. You just never did it. But you've got to go do it now. So I'm like, okay, cool. I, I'll go do this. And I thought to myself, this is how crazy it was. Like I said, our relationship was on shaky ground due to the divorce and everything. So me and him were still having those issues. And I had um, thought in my own mind, thought to myself, yeah, I can go down here and expose him and let everybody know how bad he is. That's what I thought. But God had a different plan. So not knowing how to preach, the only thing I could do is to do what all kids have done growing up. Imitate your favorite preacher. So first thing I did was I go home and I started going through the cassette tapes. And I found a sermon of his preacher by the name of David Shows, who was actually the one who established the congregation in Pulaski. And I listened to this sermon he did called Stay in the House over Joshua chapter 2. I can actually recite that sermon right now, verbatim, because I remember it that well. Um, so that Sunday morning when I had to go preach, that's what I preached. I had to preach David Shows' sermon. So, just like any... I could still say kid, even though I'm like 23 at this time. No, 21. 
I remember getting up in there and I preached the sermon exactly the way I had heard it. And I just kept doing that. I did that for like six months. I was studying, getting ready, and I would just listen to other preachers preach. And, and I'm like, okay, this is cool. So after about nine months, Dad comes back. And I said, okay, here you go. I'm, I'm, I'm going back with Rhonda. I'm going to live with her for a little bit until I found me a place to stay. But I'm going to start restart up there with Rhonda. So I did that. Got back to Nashville. I was living with my sister in uh, Laverne. Her and her family. Had a job working and everything. And I started missing it. I'm like, man. I think I want to do that again. Because what it started for me to do one way, God completely changed my heart in it. And that <laughs> it brought me back to the love I'd had for the word as a child when I was studying to preach and to do everything. And in that moment, I said, okay, let me call Daddy. Daddy, would it be okay? And this was around Christmas time. If I came down and preached, he said, oh, I was actually going to ask you to come over because the brothers requested you to come over here and, and preach our Sunday service. I said, cool, I'll come. Once again, I didn't know what he had up his sleeve, him or God. What daddy had done is he told the people at the church he was stepping down because his heart was giving him issues. And he was going to hand it over to his son. And they, because they was, and that's who they were asking. And they wanted me to come over there. Little did I know that one Sunday that I was coming back would be a stint to where I would be at that church for 14 years uh, as their minister. And that's what started that journey is that I got there and I start. I preached that Sunday morning, and I think it was a year or two later, I preached the worst sermon I think I ever preached in my life. And I remember coming out of the pulpit and I was like, God, help me. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, I'm going to mess somebody up up here if I'm not careful. Daddy had also said to me, Junior, you got to get back in school. You got to finish your degree. I said, Daddy, I don't want to do criminal justice anymore. That's not what I want to do. He said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I have no clue. And then finally, I listened to a whole bunch of Marshall Keeble tapes and stuff. And I kept hearing Marshall Keeble talk about Christian education, Christian education. And I said, is that what you're trying to tell me, God, to go get a Christian education? So I said, okay. I, I, I didn't leave TSU in good terms. I was on probation when I left there. Because I literally let my class, I had a 3.5 before the divorce. But after that started, and I didn't go to class, it dropped my GPA. So when I decided, oh, I'm going back to school. Daddy said, where are you going then? I said, I'm going to Lipscomb. He said, Junior, that's the highest school around. What are you talking about you going to Lipscomb? I said, I really don't know how, but I, I, I'm, that's where I'm going. He says, what? I said, I trust God to do whatever he needs to do to get me where I need to be. He said, what are you majoring in? I said, I'm going to major in Bible. I said, I said if I'm going to preach, I need to know what I'm talking about. And I need to learn how to get into this book for myself and bring out what's there rather than constructing things in my own mind and thinking that's gospel. That's not the truth. He said, okay. So I applied online, got the call back. 
had a recruiter, I think his name was Scott Gilmer, called me and said, hey, come on, you know, come on over, and we'll get you to sit, you know, get you a tour. So I went over there, and um, Scott took me around campus, and that day I was there, he says, let me take you to the Bible department. I want to introduce you to somebody over there. And he took me to meet Dr. Michael Moss, who was, I think, uh, the dean of the Bible school, uh, college then. And he took me over there, sat me in his office, me and him talked for a little bit. And Dr. Moss was so enthusiastic. And, you know, he says, well, yeah, you're gonna, we're going to apply, you know, we do this, this. He just started talking about all the things we were going to do. I hadn't even been accepted yet. So a few days, you know, a few weeks go by. I get a call from Scott. He lets me know I've been accepted on an academic probation status, probationary status. I had certain things I had to do. I said, cool. Now, by this time, I'm 24 years old. So I'm going back into college as a sophomore. Should have been graduating by this time. So here I am on a brand new campus, smaller campus, not like Tennessee State. Uh, everybody's nice. Enrollment was easy. New endeavors, all things new. I had this one idea of what I was going to do when I got there, and God totally reframed everything for me. So, needless to say, I get there, meet Dr. Moss. They bring me back to Dr. Moss's office that first day, and I walk in, and he's hey, James, great to see you. Because he don't call me Angus, he calls me James. <laughs> one of the only, one of the few people to do that. So I walk in the office, and it's so funny, because I never forget, he says, I said, yeah, I'm here to work on my, you know, they told me to come here and talk to you about my schedule and get that straight out. Oh, yeah, here you go. I said, what's this? That's your schedule. Go and take it to such and such. They'll get you straight down. I'm like, what am I taking? Just read that over there as you're on your way over there. <laughs> what? So quickly he looked and says, oh, I just wanted to go play to your strength, so I got you communicating the gospel. I got you in my Greek class. And I'm like, oh, okay. So literally, Dr. Moss took me under his wing in my undergraduate years. Uh, in the first semester, I made the dean's list. I made the dean's list every year in undergrad after that because he told me exactly what to take, how to take it. I think I made my schedule the last semester and I only had one class to pick because he was looking at me and says, oh, you can start your master's now too, by the way. I'm like, I can't. So I started taking graduate classes before I was even out of undergrad to get me started. So by the time I took my first full semester of undergraduate work, I already had like 12 hours of grad credits under my belt. And so the first, the first semester of grad school that I did do full time, I took a full load of twelve hours. So after two semesters, two and a, a semester and a half, I had twenty four some hours going into that. After I just graduated out of undergrad, so I started my MD of moving fast. Uh, the end of the first semester, there was a car wreck. Uh, I got hit by a drunk driver in a stolen truck on my way to class, and I broke my hand. Um, so I had to turn in stuff late because of that. Once I finally got caught up from that accident, the next semester, took another full load, by the way, with a broke hand, catching up on work. Finished at the end of that semester, April the 6th, 2007, I was on my way home from work. And in the distance, I can see this black plume of smoke as I'm driving towards my home. 
And I get closer, the plume of smoke keeps getting bigger. Finally, I get so close, I'm like, it's like on top of me, that I couldn't get to my house. I'm like, okay. Call my cousin, say, man, uh, turn on channel five. Can I see the helicopter? I said, I need to know whose apartment's on fire. And so he looks up and he says, oh my God, Angus, I'm so sorry. So in a six month time, I had a car accident and then I lost everything I had uh, in that house fire. Yeah, it was bad. It happened fast. And I still had to do finals. I hadn't got to do the finals yet. And I'm still turning work in. So by the time I hit summer school, which I'm taking a full load in summer school, I still got to do everything from the first, this semester that just got messed up. So technically I'm taking five courses of graduate classes in the summer, and I still don't remember how I made it through it. And all I can say is but God on that situation, because he's the one that got me through it. And I still maintain a 3.0 GPA through all of this. House burned down, lost everything I had. And the next day when I woke up, the first phone call I got was from Lee Camp. I only had Lee Camp for one class, and that was an undergrad. And Lee Camp heard that something had happened, that I lost my home. And Lee Camp calls me up and says, hey, Angus, uh, I heard your house burned down. What can I do? Where do you need me to be? And for that, I'm always indebted to Lee because that was the first voice I heard in the midst of that calamity. And in the midst of all that, of seeing places and people who didn't even know me reach out and help me, show me what real church looked like. Real church wasn't where I'd always been. It was those I didn't know who loved me, didn't know me. It was those who knew that something could have been messed up with me, but loved me despite all that. And I learned that in those moments. So I made it through grad school after all that went down. It was rough. It was rough. But at the end of grad school, Dad got sick. Uh, so three years go by, and I let everything I did in my MDF, I let that go through, wash over me, soak in. And my wife, we met in 2011, not 2011, 2009 at Sears, where I was doing loss prevention. Yeah, she saw me slam this big dude as I was trying to catch him from stealing. He was trying to take some stuff out the store and I had to run down to catch him. And she just says, oh, who's that strong man? <laughs> so Next week we'll have Melly's <laughs> So we got married in uh, 20, no, no, 2000, February 2011. Uh, after we dated for what? Was it two years? Year? It happened so fast. <laughs> well, then in 2012, Melody decided to go back to school to finish her degree. And in the process of that, she finished out in like 2014. But she taught, found a degree at the school she was going to. She said, Angus, you need to look at this. This sounds like something you might like. Because at the time, I was looking for PhD programs. I was going to do a New Testament PhD at Southern Baptist uh, Theological up in Louisville. And I was trying to figure out how I was going to do all that. And I was trying to find different PhD programs or an MTH program to get some extra time in Greek and stuff. I ended up meeting a lady by the name of Peggy Way, Dr. Peggy Way. Uh, she was a United Church of Christ minister and a pastoral care specialist. She was one of the first women to teach at Vanderbilt Divinity School uh, under Seward, Seward Hiltner who was a student of the father of pastoral care, Anton Boysen. Uh, 
So I learned from a second generation Anton Boysen student who was the founder of Pastoral Care how to do what I did. I learned under her was pastoral care, pastoral community counseling and care under Peggy Way. Uh, she changed my life. Uh, Peggy helped open my eyes to the strength of women in ministry and how God shaped women to do exactly what she was doing in ministry. And she was great at what she did. Peggy could just open people's eyes up for just a, a minor conversation. I loved her to death. Uh, she died about a week, no, a month before we were scheduled to defend my dissertation. My father had died the day after I started the program. But by that time, through all those struggles, me and him had worked everything out. It was just really hard. So I pushed all that stuff, made it through the entire program, finished it out, graduated top in my program, first out of the program here. I was even my, I spoke at my graduation. And it was interesting because after I finished doing my dissertation and everything, I said, I've got to sit down. I've got to rest. I've got to take time off. And that's what brought me to Otter Creek. I stepped down from ministry for about two years, and me and Mel found Otter Creek in 2017. And we said, let's go visit. Because at the time, my little cousin Robert was here, Robert and Tiffany Jackson. And we came to visit, and I would try to sit up under the balcony in the dark, in the back where nobody would see me, out of the way. And I said, I need to go to a place that I can heal that I can rest because I've been pushing myself so hard through life, I've not taken the time to rest for myself. And Mel said, yeah, the kids will love it. I love it. She loves it here. I said, honey, do you want to go here? She said, yes, I want to be here. This is why I can fit in. I, I love it here. So we haven't left. Uh, and I, like I said, I tried my best to, to just blend in, just slide out, you know. But no matter what I did, in 2020, I was working at the insurance at AIG. I was a um, a tra corporate trainer. And during, when the pandemic broke out, I was actually in Houston, Texas, training a class. And we'd already been told a little bit before that that by November of 2020, we wouldn't have jobs because we were moving everything to Houston. So I was technically in Houston training my replacements. So that was the time I had to ask God. We just bought a house, too. In the middle of all this hecticness, we started buying a house. We picked the right time. For some, it wasn't the right time. For us, it was perfect timing. In the start of the pandemic, everything shutting down, we're buying a house. <laughs> it worked out. We got it. You know, now our values doubled. So that was a good investment. But anyway, one day, as I was in the backyard, see, when we bought the house, I didn't really look at the yard part of that. All I was worried about if she liked the house. I'm like, baby, do you like, is this what you want? I said, you know, your sister lives th two minutes this way. Your grandparents are three minutes over there. Is this good for you? She's like, yeah. I didn't think to myself, look at all this yard you got to mow. <laughs> I didn't think about all that. So I was out in the backyard one day clearing out brush. And I had asked God, I'm like, 
what do you want me to do? Because I had been applying for different jobs in AIG. None of them were working out. Finally said, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to go back into the ministry? Or do you want me to keep doing what I'm doing? I need to know something, God. And every time I've ever talked to God in my life, y'all, he's responded. I asked for faith one time. I had a car wreck. I lost everything I had. I asked for faith and patience. And that's response. And it gave me exactly what I needed. Faith and patience coming out of those things. Well, that day I asked him, what did he want me to do? You won't believe what happened the next day. The next day, I get a call from Eric Livingston. JB, have you thought about the community life position here at Otter Creek? I said, man, I thought y'all hired somebody months ago. He's like, no, we haven't. I've been having to pull double duty. But me and Josh were talking about you, and we thought you would be a fit. Would you like to have that conversation with us? I said, let me talk to my wife. So I talked to Mel. I said, babe, what do you think about this? She got excited. She was like, this is what you've been waiting for. This is what you studied to do. This is all year's work that you've been working for. It, it, it brought you to this. Do it. I'm like, okay. So I, said, I called Eric back and said, okay, we can have the conversation. So, you know, they brought me up here and had me meet Steve. I'm like, I don't know about that guy. <laughs> I met everybody else, loved everybody, and I said, okay. Mel was like, so, honey, what do you think? You think they're going to hire you? I said, who knows, baby? Churches of Christ, it takes forever for them to hire people. And I said, I probably won't know next year. That's what I'm thinking. I got a call next week. Hey, JB, we want to extend. What? Already? Are you sure? Are you calling the right? You mean, you're talking about James Boyd, not James Buford, right? No, we're talking about you, man. I'm like, oh, okay. So that's how I got here. Um, God brought me here that way. It was kind of an interesting roller coaster. And I try to give you the truncated version of it. Uh, I left some of my corkscrews out of it, but pretty you much. Have two children, right? Three. Three children. Brody, Jameson, and Alora. <laughs> Brody is in middle school. Uh, he's an eighth grader. He's currently uh, playing basketball for his, his first his first season for Springfield Middle. They've only won one game, but they're they're trying. Uh, Jameson is eleven and in the fifth grade, and they'll be getting ready to start upward basketball next week. Him and Alora. Alora will be seven in a few days, in the seventh of December, and we got to get that birthday party thing going on. Because Lord knows we've been waiting for this all year. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously, in April, my birthday's in December. <laughs> Baby, we didn't get past my birthday yet. Chill. Every month, my birthday's in December. Yes, it is. So here we are now. She's like, my birthday's in a week. <laughs> I'm like, I want my party, and this is why I want my party. I want my party to be a Christmas party. I'm like, would it be anything else? <laughs> The house is going to have trees everywhere. Of course it's a Christmas party. So we're prepping for that. Um, and she's in the, oh Lord, first grade. This stuff moves so fast. But we've enjoyed our the journey here. And I'm just blessed to have the people I've had support me, uh, like my wife, uh, the people who've helped me along the way, the many, many, many people, uh, the seen and the unseen, the known and the unknown. Uh, because I couldn't have done anything that I've done by myself. It had to be all by God's hand. Because there's been some times, there's been some stuff I've been through. 
I didn't tell you about the wrecks I've been in, the car wrecks and the other things in intermediate parts, like the nights where I've chased down gunmen. And I told you, I wasn't armed and caught people with guns and shot people. I did that. You know, I had bullets whizzed by my hand. I know what that sensation feels like. I've seen my best friend get stabbed. I watch friends die from overdoses. I've seen this stuff. That's just part of it. But God brought me through all of that. I've also been in a car that flipped, was flipped ten times and landed on the roof, and I survived. But God, once again, I mean, God has had a plan for me from the day I got here. And he's, still, he hadn't, he's not done with me yet. He's still working. He's still working through me. I'm just glad to be a vessel. And I'm just glad to be able to use the gifts he's given me to love on people and encourage and to connect people. Ah, here he at Otter Creek. I'm just glad he brought me here to be with y'all. And thank you for taking your time out being with me this morning. It's being so attentive, and nobody snored. I appreciate it. <laughs>